This is the Monday Call, brought to you by New Zealand Funds. The growing crisis in Europe and the UK is highlighting the increasing urgency of energy self-sufficiency. And in a decarbonising world, that energy needs to be clean and sustainable if countries are to meet ambitious climate targets. We're joined by John Flynn, Chief Executive of the UK Infrastructure Bank. The bank's two main objectives are to support the UK to reach carbon net zero and to enable local and regional economic growth. In this wide-ranging discussion, we talk about the urgency of the bank's mission, the projects the bank has supported so far, and the particular challenges posed by the current economic situation in the UK and Europe. But first, our Chief Client Officer Stefan Clark asked John to explain the origins of the UK Infrastructure Bank. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's let's start at the beginning. And obviously, the origins of the bank predate my role. I, I've been here a year, um, so I joined in September last year. But I think that the bank's origins probably came from two main roots. One was um, some of the senior figures in the National Infrastructure Commission for quite some years now have been arguing that the UK needed a policy bank that could play a role in accelerating the development of infrastructure, that there were gaps in the private markets that needed to be filled by an organisation like this. And then, of course, the second factor was Brexit and the fact that post-Brexit, the EIB is no longer deploying capital across the UK. So we, we lost that development capital um, being deployed into the UK economy. So a, a long-standing, um, if you like, academic argument for the bank, the catalyst of Brexit, and then senior figures in, in Treasury and the government deciding now is, now is the time to do it. Um, so I, I think most of the work started a year before I joined. So we're probably two years, two years away from the origins of the bank. Um, but yeah, that, that's the background. Okay, and then it's, it's, I guess its core mission is, as you think about it, um, how, how would you go about describing that? Yeah, I mean, our mission's clear, compelling, quite narrow, very focused. We are here to uh, ensure that financing required for the infrastructure that will get this country to net zero and help with local and regional economic growth, making sure that finance happens either by providing it ourselves, but probably more importantly, working with the private sector and crowding in private sector capital, because we've got financial capacity of 22 billion pounds for the first five years. In the context of an arm's length, you know, an arm's length public body, that's an awful lot of money. But in the context of the investment required to get to net zero, for example, it's a small amount of money. So. Uh, we are going to have to play a catalytic role and a convening role in getting the private markets to come to come alongside us. You know, in in my sort of lighter moments, I would describe what we're doing as we're, you know, we're building a government-sponsored niche investment bank in Yorkshire, um, which I think is a it, it is a fair description of what we're doing. It hasn't and nothing like that has has been has been done before. Um, but the beauty of our mission is the focus and the clarity around infrastructure is only in the UK and it's all about serving net zero for the broader levelling up agenda. Fantastic. Okay, well, we, we're going to go into the detail of that a little bit because it's such a you know, compelling story. But before we, before we do that, it would be great if you could share a little bit about your journey. Where did you start out? How did you find yourself 
in, in this role, obviously. And then um, what attracted you to a civil service position after such an incredible career in, in, in banking? Yeah, so I, I had a, a very you know, fortunate, privileged career at HSBC. I joined as graduate trainee. I left as the chief executive. Um, had some amazing experiences along the way. And then a decision to, you know, a decision to make what to do next, what's the next chapter going to bring. And a, a few people kind of nudged me in the direction of, of this role when it came up. And it took me a while to, to figure out that I, I did want to, I did want to put my, put my hat in the ring. I think the thing that attracted me in the first instance was just the clarity of the purpose. Um, I think most people want to be purpose-led and here the purpose just screamed at you from, you know, from the first words on the page. It was very clear. It was of the moment. You know, our mission is absolutely timely. You couldn't think of a better time to, to launch and lead an organisation like this. So that, I guess, drew me in. And then, if I'm really honest, the, the slightly more selfish reasons kind of came to the fore as well, which were I recognised that if I took this role on, I would learn an awful lot you know i would learn how to do a startup you know i, I joined i joined a medium-sized organization and, and ended up leading one of the world's largest organizations so I'd, I'd done the big things um i've never been anywhere close to a startup before so i was going to learn how to do that how to build an organization from the ground up how to develop a culture from the ground up build systems and processes so i, I was excited about that um i was also excited at the prospect of learning how government and the public sector works, because I'd, I'd always been on the private side and never candidly given it that much thought. And, and now, you know, this is this is my my new ecosystem. This is where I live and work. So that was a great opportunity. And then the other, I guess, the third area of learning that I got excited about was the opportunity to go deep into a sector. Um, you know, certainly for the last say ten or fifteen years of my my HSBC career, I was a generalist and you know, I sat across a broad range of things and you had to be, you know, an expert in, in, a, in a thousand things at once at a reasonably superficial level. Um, and it's really nice now to get the opportunity to go deep into a sector. So, you know, the, the clarity of the mission and the purpose really compelling drew me in. And then very selfishly, I got excited about all the great learning opportunities that were in front of me. And, and a year in, um, I wasn't wrong. I'm learning an enormous amount. That's great. Well, it's amazing to hear you, you know, so positive about it. I understand um, when you talked about setting up a bank in Yorkshire, you're, it's established in, in Leeds, and um, so you're building a team out of Leeds, which isn't for the UK, perhaps it's natural home. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really exciting part of the challenge, but it is a challenge because... Um, you know, the financial centre of the UK is is London. Um, the financial centre of the world is probably still London. Um, you know, we've got other cities that do have a financial presence. Um, you know, an asset management um, a presence in Edinburgh. Birmingham's got a growing retail presence, etc. Leeds actually has a, a retail banking presence. But we're trying to convene investment banking skills, corporate banking skills, um, into a city where there isn't a great deal of depth there. So what we're, and we're doing this in the context of, of, of public sector, of public sector pay and reward as well. So uh, there's nothing wrong with Leeds, but Leeds is a challenge simply because it's not London. And what it means is that the, the, 
the time it takes to scale a team is longer here than it would be if we were scaling it in London. But the, the reason that the, it will be worth it is we are going to be part of a growing ecosystem of financial services in the city of Leeds. The Bank of England is relocating hundreds of jobs here. The FCA, the Conduct Authority, have plans to relocate many jobs up here as well. We will probably scale to around 300. So it, it's a bit of a challenge, but it will be worth it when it's done. You know, five years from now, um, there will be some brilliant jobs in, in Leeds for people who want to construct a, a career in finance. And, and actually what it means for, for graduates in the north of England, you can build, build a career in finance now without having to default to living in London. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a challenge, but it's going to be worth it by the time, we, by the time we've scaled up. And I'm sure there are a lot of people that like that, you know, and want to get out of the hustle and bustle of the big smoke. And, um, yes. and it's actually, you know, but bring their skills uh, to be. Absolutely right. Yeah. Um, how, how unique is the bank in a Europe world context? How, how, because, I mean, we don't have one, for example, and I know Australia's got something sort of similar, but it's not, um, it's not set out in the same, with the same mandate. How, how would you describe that? <clears throat> I think there's, there's lots of, of policy banks and development banks, some multilateral, some single country. So it's hard to say that we're unique, but I, I do think there's nothing else quite as specific to net zero as us. So um, the can Canada has an infrastructure bank um, with many similar missions, but we're about in the infrastructure for net zero um, and for, for local and regional economic growth. And I think that makes us unique. So we're, a, and I think many people in other countries are looking at us the way that we're setting up, the start that we're that we're having, and they will assess over time whether or not we are able to make that difference in the markets, whether we are able to accelerate the pace at which finance mobilizes around net zero. So many many other similar institutions, very few with the narrow specific kind of niche focus around infrastructure for net zero. And, I, and I'd like to think if we can get off to a good start or continue the good start we've made and demonstrate that this does work, that this does make a difference to markets, that we can shape the flows of capital and we can, we can find you know, that missing risk piece, that missing elusive risk piece that, uh, that will unlock private flows, that we would hope that other countries might be able to learn from that and, and do something similar. It is, it is a global goal, moving to net zero, something we, um, I guess, most countries, hopefully all countries share. What, what, what would you, how would you describe the sticking points in the UK to that transition? Um, the stubborn emission sectors, if you will. And, um, and where does the bank think about where it can make the biggest difference in moving them in the right direction? Yeah, I mean, it's... I'm glad we're having this conversation a year in because a year ago, if we'd done this at the start, I would have been guessing. I've now had a year to kind of understand the landscape, understand government policy. I think the UK is in pretty good shape in the context of the transition to net zero. Um, you know, we've got this, these much trail statistics. You know, since 1990, the economy's grown by, um, get this right, we're right, right. I think the economy's grown by 78%, whilst emissions have fallen by 44%. So, We've demonstrated that you can begin the process of decarbonizing while still growing the economy. Now, a, a lot of that was 
was achieved because we took coal out of the power system. So the, the, the harder adjustments are ahead. But we do have, I think, a really credible uh, policy framework that indicates government's priorities um, across the key industrial sectors that are relevant to net zero for the next 5, 10, 15 years. And for us, that's great because our role is to align behind that and, 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 and amplify and amplify that government policy. So from where I sit at the moment and the organization I'm trying to build, I like to use the phrase that we have no excuses. You know, it's too easy to say we need greater clarity around this. We need greater prescription around that. There's enough clarity for us to work with. Now, we know um, as, we, as we plan our capital allocation, we've been given five priority sectors of clean energy, digital, waste, water, and transport. All fascinating sectors will be active across all of them, but clean energy is by far and away the guerrilla sector there. Um, uh, we've got significant uh, capacity of, of onshore and offshore wind that needs to be financed. We've got solar capacity that needs to be built. We've got an energy storage um, infrastructure that needs to be built. And we've got the whole hydrogen and carbon capture economies and in, in industries to be built as well. And you know, the public policy will start to, to move that forward, I think, really quite quickly from next year. So we've got a roadmap in front of us, which is which is clear. And so I don't I don't let the team talk about the sticking points. Um, you know, our challenge is going to be the capital allocation. Where do we use our resources to try and get the biggest the biggest leverage? It's not the strategy; it's the execution. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> you talk about, uh, I guess, energy and that being ultimately the, the key focus area. But your initial investments focused on gigabyte capable or giga capable broadband infrastructure. Why was that? So digital is, is one of our five priority sectors. The role that we played in those, uh, we've done four transactions now, was really about um, accelerating the development of very high-speed broadband capability across the UK. There's a government policy objective that, we're, that we were supporting, but gigabit or high-speed broadband uh, connectivity is critical to both the levelling up agenda um, and ultimately to net zero. I mean, the, the efficiencies that you, we will require from an integrated energy system um, will require um, an awful lot of devices, an awful lot of technology to be connected in a high-speed and intelligent way. So that's, if you like, it's, that's a fundamental piece of infrastructure that will sit underneath nearly everything else we did, uh, everything else that we need to do. Um, and the role that we wanted to play, alongside many other banks actually, was just to accelerate the financing um, and the market capacity for that build out. The quicker the build out happens, the quicker we can get on with the, with the rest of uh, the good work. Yeah. Okay. So, so is it about meeting a gap where there's been private sector failure, or is it more about helping the private sector feel more confident in deploying capital um, through partnerships and guarantees from yourselves? It can be all of those things. I mean, sometimes you will just have a very clear gap where you know there could be a risk a risk appetite issue. Um, you know, the, London is the world's financial capital, but the, the number of domestic corporate and wholesale banking players is quite small. And sometimes, you know, the, the big players, they go limit up on a particular sector or a particular activity and they're full. Um, and I think on as we get into the, the, 
larger expansion of the clean energy sector, that will happen a little more frequently. And we will, on occasion, have a role to play where it's the technology is understood, the risk is understood, there is capacity for it in the market, but it's not enough to meet the the scale of the of the financing required. And we will just slot in and provide capital. That's the very simple end of the pro- of the problems we need to solve. The more interesting end is when it comes to first of a kind technology, where you know people will look at a project, and we've got some examples we're looking at now in in energy storage, where at one level everybody accepts that we have to build an energy storage industry to support a renewables grid. You can't have you can't have the capacity of renewables we have without increased storage capacity. So everyone accepts that. And there are some established technologies that the market is increasingly comfortable financing. But there are some newer technologies that are really interesting that could have a meaningful role to play in long duration energy storage. But for the first few projects, commercial banks wouldn't normally go there. And you know, in my old role, I probably almost certainly wouldn't have gone there. And that's where we've got a role to play, where we, we will demonstrate a different appetite for risk and also demonstrate possibly confidence in government policy. Um, so, you know, we, we go out looking for problems. Um, to date, we've solved some of the simpler ones, and that's largely uh, just a very humble reflection of the fact we're starting out. You know, we're only a year old, um, and we haven't scaled the teams and, and convened all the skills yet. So we've been, we've been operating at the simpler end of the problem spectrum, but if there is infrastructure that's needed, um, it's doable. We can find a way to get comfortable with the risk and solve a complex problem. We'd rather be at the complex end of the spectrum than the simple end. You say you had earlier twenty-two billion pounds of financial capacity, um, and I understand it's to be deployed over sort of five, five to eight years. And you've you've closed a number of deals, plus hired, I think, 150 people. I kind of laughed when you said we haven't scaled up, having already done that, but um, <laughs> in, in, uh, very quiet laugh, of course. Tell, tell, I mean, tell me about the journey so far to get to that point. I mean, systems and processes are one thing. Um, finding deals is another thing. Um, moving from Excel spreadsheets to hopefully some form of system, uh, you know, is another thing. So how, yeah. how have you thought about that and, and, um, and how do you yeah. know you're going fast enough or, or are you going too fast? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, you know, that question is probably the key responsibility for me as the, as the chief exec in these first few years. And then, and a decision was made just before I arrived to, to launch the bank. We launched the bank, the, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, launched the bank in June last year. And we declared the bank open. We had some authorities. We had a skeleton staff. And we, we declared the bank open. And we took a decision, or a decision was taken, which I then, kind of entirely embraced when I joined in September to build the bank by doing, you know, announced that we're open, um, listen to the market, find a couple of transactions and, and go and build the bank around that. And in the context of the public sector, that's quite an unusual approach. You know, you look at other arm's length bodies that have been set up. They've typically spent 12, 18 months, um, in the kind of the design stage, you know, writing the policies and the procedures, etc., we took a different approach, and we said we're going to we're going to build a bank um, uh, on the on the go, and we're going to convene 
know, the skills around around the transactions. Looking back at the end of my first year, that was a great decision. It wasn't my decision, I can't take any credit for it, but it was a great decision. Um, because what I've seen is that the bank's skills and capabilities do shift every time we write a ticket, every time we, we find a new deal to write, a new structure to finance, the, the bank's skills build and grow. And it, you can't do this in theory. Well, you can go so far in theory, um, you can, and I'm sure you've done this, Stefan, before you write a policy, and it's not until you, you know, try and implement that policy into the market or with a counterparty that you really then understand what it means and, and, and where your red lines are. So we, 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 we've gone at pace, we've gone at real pace, and we've done this as quickly as we reasonably can. And what I say to many of my stakeholders is, I'm going to build this as quickly as we can, whilst being entirely confident that I can manage the risks that we're taking. So we can't be reckless, we're deploying public money. We can't get ahead of our skis. But the mission that we've been set up to serve, net zero and leveling up, is urgent. It's urgent. We, we can't wait. We can't spend a year writing policies. We can't spend two years in design phase. It's urgent. So at the end of the first year, we, we've now up to 11 transactions. We're, the bank's 160 people. Um, not enough of them are yet permanent hires. We still are quite dependent on contract staff. Um, but. But we're, we're going as quick. We're going as quickly as we can. And whenever we're challenged, I've got really two messages. One, I, we think the mission's urgent. If you disagree with us, let me know. Uh, and two, I've got a reasonable amount of banking experience. I won't let us get ahead of ourselves. We're taking risks at this stage that we can safely and, and comfortably manage. Um, yeah. That kind of circles back to your comment earlier about a startup and the mindset of you know, a willingness to take risk and make mistakes and and also use data to build how you, build what you need rather than hypothesize what you'll need in the future. You you you, you do it around what you need today. Um, which is yeah, I mean perhaps different from how public sector ordinarily operates. Well you know, we we've, we've got a very clear mandate from Treasury and we've been set up to be operationally independent. And um, you know, we have very tight and effective governance with our shareholders. So the, the, the potential for us to go off piste, I think, is, is, is pretty limited. Um, and we are deploying public money. So um, the, the notion that we can, you know, make mistakes, I think we've got to be pretty careful, <laughs> careful there. Um, we're deploying money. But the, the point about the way we've engaged with the market and the benefits of declaring ourselves open and then interfacing with the market is it's those conversations, it's those dialogues, it's those negotiations that help you figure out actually where the gaps are. And they help you figure out um, how you can deploy your resources in service of the mission. If you don't, you know, the, the longer you drag that engagement out, the, the slower you do that, the slower you're going to be effective. Um, but it, it, it comes back to... Um, you've still just got to make sure you're you're te only taking the risk that you can effectively manage, given the state of your development. You know, a couple of years from now, we will have a, you know, a fully resourced risk function, um, a fully resourced origination team across the front office, including banking and portfolio management. And at that point, I'd like to think there isn't a there isn't a structure or a piece of risk that we wouldn't be able to organise ourselves around. Today, there are lots. You know, the 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 11 transactions we've written 
they're quite straightforward, deliberately so, because you know we're going at pace, but within the constraints, if you like, of the skills and capabilities capabilities of the organisation today. Um, and that's my role as the chief exec or the, the accounting officer in, in public sector terms. Okay. You, you've announced that the bank is moving into direct equity investments um, and, and working with third, third party banks. Could you explain what that is, how it works, and you know, why <laughs> yeah. that's a bit different from the bank's tr traditional one-year-old, um, uh, more yeah. uh, debt and guarantee function? Sure. So if we, we start with like, the, the financial um, risk shape of the bank. So £22 billion pounds is our notional capacity, notional financial capacity. Um, but we have to operate within an economic capital risk budget of £4.5 billion. Pounds. Um, so uh, nominal of 22, but economic risk of 4.5. Now that indicates that um, we can't deploy all of our capital into equity, but equally, we shouldn't be deploying all of that into senior debt. So we're going, we are going to deploy our capital along the capital spectrum from high-grade senior debt, or I suspect in limited quantums, all the way through to equity. Now, as you will know, um, direct equity investing is a very different skill set to senior debt lending alongside other banks. As things stand today, as a bank, we've got this team with the skills and experience to do the debt piece. We haven't yet recruited enough people on the direct equity side. So we had a choice, very clear choice. Do we not do, do we not commit any capital yet in direct equity? Do we wait? Or do we outsource that activity and deploy it via third party managers? And um, we've, we've actually just adopted a technique that um, has existed in, in government before of using qualified third party managers to deploy some of our capital on our behalf. We've done that to a limited extent in our first year. That will wind down as we build the skills. But the key decision for us was, if you don't have the skills to do this yourself today, do you wait until you do? Or do you take advantage of the fact that we are in the UK and we do have this amazing financial ecosystem and people with great skills and an urgent mission? Do you use them? We've taken the decision with the full support of the board and the shareholder that we will use third party managers to a limited extent. Um, and we've done a bit of that in the first year. So it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward, I hope reasonably uncontroversial. We are building the skills, we're doing the recruitment now to, to be able to do it ourselves. Um, yeah, but it also means that you accelerate the deployment of the capital, doesn't it? Exactly, it means you, ex you accelerate the deployment of the capital, but the other thing that we've, we're learning from um, already is that you, your coverage and your breadth of market insight expands very quickly because you get to see um, the investee companies in these portfolios. You, you know, we didn't have the skills to go out and source the transactions, but we are now the beneficiary of the quarterly reports that tell us how these portfolios are doing. There will be follow-on investments required. It will give us direct insights into the capital flows across niche parts of our, of our sector mandate. So it, it just accelerates things. Um, and you know the, the 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 real you know the, what do we come back to? That first principle is this mission's urgent. Anyone who thinks we should be waiting or be patient, you know, I'm happy to have that conversation, but we'll we'll just we'll end up disagreeing with. It. <laughs> well, I like that you're you know you're clearly so clear about that. Um, there's a 
good chance the UK is in for something of a rough winter this year and um, in Europe as a whole with energy prices and uh, you know going up meaningfully and, a, and the potential for a, a, um, you know a slowdown uh, is is financial instability likely to change or impact what you do or if, if that you know is the knock-on effect of it or is it more that the bank is um, more immune because of its long-term goal and and the fact that it's um, uh, I guess uh, who its stakeholders are I, I'd like to think the bank's mission is immune um, but there's no question that you know, the markets we're leaning into are absolutely affected by by rising rates by inflationary pressures you know a lot of a lot of infrastructure has huge energy energy price inputs into the raw materials, steel, concrete, cables, uh, etc. So there's no question that the markets that we're serving uh, are, are impacted by what's going on there. But if you, again, take, take a step back, that probably means we're going to be more needed than less needed. There are going to be more gaps than there would be otherwise. There are going to be more projects that struggle to, to either get off the ground or struggle to continue. So I think it, um, the need for us uh, just really intensify, and, it, and it's, I don't take any pleasure in this, but the, the, the need for, for us and the, the organisation that we're building intensifies as, as financial market conditions deteriorate. Um, and, you know, I, I have this conversation with the team nearly every day. It's, it, it's hard not to be distracted by everything that's going on around us, right? I mean, everyone's human and... and um, there's an awful lot going on inside the UK and then outside the UK as well. It's hard not to get distracted, but what we consciously try to do is just remind everybody why we're here, what our mission and purpose is, and how important it is, how increasingly important it is that we just build the skills so we can deliver what we've got as quickly as possible. Because um, it's going to be needed. Yes, it is. Um... So much of Europe has turned away from nuclear energy oh, yeah. after Fukushima, and um, we're seeing places like Germany turning to coal now, as, a res as arguably as a result of that. Um, how you know what's the UK's nuclear energy policy, and, and and how does it? How do you think about it in terms of deploying capital to achieving your you know net zero goals? Yeah. So. Nuclear is part of, of the energy policy for the UK going forward. That's been clear for a while now. Um, significant investment and expansion into our nuclear capacity. And, and that, actually, from an engineering perspective, I think makes perfect sense in the context of, of the stability um, that's going to be required as we, as we pivot to a mostly re renewable grid. Now, because it's government policy, um, you know, as, as a policy bank, it's not really our role to to second guess that. Um, so we will have a financial capacity for nuclear, um, but it's too early at this stage to know um, how we will be required and how much of our capacity might be required. Um, so yeah, I mean, nuclear is part of the, uh, of the go forward here in the UK. Um, and if we can play a constructive role, if there are market gaps um, when it comes to financing the new projects, uh, we will be there. I suspect it's a very specialist skill set um, 
that you know when you're when you're looking at those sorts of projects how do you assess the viability how do you obviously the, there's a very long lead-in time to um from concept to a shovel going in the ground to actually producing something yes i think that's exactly right and i've got i do have a couple of colleagues um uh, in the bank who worked on uh, nuclear programs for before and for many 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 years as you say the duration attached to them is is long but i think the, the the key thing is getting that mix right between direct public investment in the equity piece um and then understanding the market's capacity for taking for, for taking the rest and of course we have the rab model here the regulatory regulated asset base which um provides for quite a helpful financing mechanism to de-risk um both the construction and the operation phase so it, it will all it'll, it'll get done and no question of that just what that ultimate financing menu looks like um, i think is to be determined a smorgasbord perhaps um Indeed. Uh, as, as we were preparing, you talked about a conundrum um, in that at some point in the future uh, where energy generation becomes so much cheaper everywhere at the same time. And, um, and because of the, net, you know, as a, I guess as a result of the net zero goal and that this creates real challenges for organisations, banks modelling, you know, how they think about their projects that they're looking at. You know, and I presumably um, HM Treasury thinks and understands, I guess, this conundrum at some some level too. How do you see that playing out? And is it a real risk today, or is it something that we sort of ignore and, and press on? Well, I think we need to ignore it and press on. <laughs> okay. is, 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 is the first answer, but I, I do think it's sometimes helpful to kind of try and try and get the crystal ball out and think 15 20 years hence and, I, and I, I do this in the spirit now of trying to be optimistic about the future um and it's not been easy to be, to be optimistic about the future for for a little while um i spent a reasonable amount of time in the nordics in the last few months which has been fascinating and and it's it made me realize that i think most that the rational plan if you are a democratic government is to plan towards energy self-sufficiency, mostly powered by renewables, and to plan to have a bit more than you actually need. Um, that's what we intend to do in the UK, and that's what the Nordics intend to do, and that's what I suspect most European countries will intend to do, which is great. I mean, it's that, in the context of your domestic mandate, makes perfect sense. You want a bit more than a bit less. You, de you don't really ever want to be in deficit because that's what was that's what causing the, the, the strain now. Now, the renewable capacity um, available through wind, through solar, etc., is more than enough. So it's all, this is all completely doable if we get the investment right. So it doesn't take too many leaps of faith to think 15, 20 years from now, electricity is going to be very cheap. Very cheap. And I don't regard, you know, the, yes, there's a, there'll be a risk to returns at some point in the future. I don't regard that as a problem. I think that's one of the biggest opportunities we've got because when I look at the global transition to net zero, I think direct air capture of, of carbon from, uh, the, from the atmosphere is going to be a critical part in keeping us remotely close to one and a half degrees because there are so many other frictions and difficulties in um, involved in, in decarbonizing the rest of the processes. So. 15 to 20 years from now, I think it'd be great. If there are surplus electrons, we should be using them to, 
to um, to drive the capture of, uh, of CO2 from the atmosphere. At the moment, that technology and that process is extraordinarily expensive, um, but those cost curves will come down. And, it, and it's just a thought I like to leave people with, because it, it, it's hard to it's hard to find too many reasons for optimism. You know, cheap energy, 15 to 20 years from now, across the democratic world, will provide the biggest productivity boost to economies that we've probably seen in my lifetime, but it will also provide this opportunity to solve that the, one of the grittier parts of the, of the carbon challenge, which is to uh, pay for extracting it um, from the atmosphere. You recently invested alongside the European Investment Bank in New Connect, an undersea energy link between Germany and the UK, which um, I obviously don't know a lot about, but uh, it, it that suggests both countries are wanting to export energy um, between them. And so uh, presumably if the UK is, will be exporting to Germany in the first instance, I imagine, but um, but maybe I'm mistaken there. So I, I guess that's an, an example of where the bank is putting in place infrastructure to facilitate, you know, that longer-term goal. Yeah, I mean, the NoiConnect deal is a really nice transaction, um, you know, Different piece of technology, the EIB with a cornerstone on the on the euro leg. We we were a cornerstone on the on, on the sterling leg, and this is you know, two democracies connecting their their renewable grid to each other. And I, I genuinely expect energy to flow both ways, um, because you know if it's the, the simple theory goes that if it's if it's windy in Germany and, and not so windy in the UK, then it will flow this way and and, and vice versa. Um, but we. As um, as Europe, well, all countries in the vicinity of the UK develop their renewable capacity, it makes perfect sense for these interconnectors to be in place because of the intermittency of the renewable, uh, renewable flows. Um, and it also just increases stability and resilience across, across the grids. Um, clearly, there are some vulnerabilities to these undersea cables, and we've got this awful experience this week of, of a couple of the, the pipelines going through the Baltic, it looks like they've been sabotaged and it shows you, you know, that if you become dependent on a piece of physical infrastructure that bad actors can can damage that. Um, but that doesn't, un- and that, that's, a, that's a risk factor. It doesn't undermine the, the economic case for connecting up um, the renewable grids across uh, across countries that you can depend on. And in working with the European Investment Bank, um, is that something you expect to do more of with other banks? Absolutely. I mean, I I frequently tell people we have no competitors. We have no competitors. The the spirit of this organisation is to be there to solve problems. If if by cooperating, partnering, risk sharing with with another multilateral bank or development bank or private, private sector actor, we'll do it. Um, if we walk into a room, similarly, if we walk into a room and find that somebody else is happy to finance a piece of infrastructure that we like, we'll shake their hands and move on because we're not needed. But yeah, I'm in a completely open mind to, to who we can cooperate with. We've just got to make sure that every time we deploy capital, we're solving a problem that needs to be solved. Um, so yeah, the EIB is a wonderful organisation, long established a massive balance sheet we're all we've already they, they probably don't know it yet we've already learned a lot from them um, well they can listen to the podcast and, and, and find out <laughs> well they should be flattered to, to, to know that we've learned an enormous amount from them um, 
but yeah, we, we have no competitors, so we will compete with anybody uh, and everybody. Okay, and in your strategic plan, you talk about crowding in investment. I've never actually heard the term crowding in. What, what do you mean by that? I know what crowding out means, but uh, presumably it's the inverse of that. But well, why did you choose the yeah. Why were those words chosen? It's a good question. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know where the words come from, but you're absolutely right. It's the inverse of crowding out. So it's the, it's the spirit of if we're there, that encourages other people to be alongside us. Um, and in nearly every transaction to date, there's, there's evidence that that's the case. People have, have said, yeah, well, if you're in, we're in. Or if you're in, I can, I can get my credit committee to, to approve a, a larger amount um, because the market rightly sees that we are deploying public money um, and we have one shareholder, which is ATM Treasury. So that gives, you know, our participation in transactions gives the market uh, a level of confidence uh, that I think is important. And uh, you're talking um, in, w in one place around uh, different types of investments that have potential. And I guess at the next phase, I mean, your strategic report is sort of looks forward from the point in time. And that point in time, I mean, the things I noted were electric vehicle charging points, retrofitting buildings, scaling, scaling up of um, storage technologies and carbon capture and other forms of carbon storage. In that sort of group, are there areas that you think are going to be focused on today or in the near future and then as you've done with internet and then you'll move over to, you know, another type like energy generation or? Yeah, I mean, if you look at I mean, the, the menu of potential areas for us to get involved in it is, is large. Um, in terms of the big industrial sectors that are going to be built, storage, we're starting to get active in that, and you'll see us deploy capital over the next 12 months. Hydrogen and carbon capture, that's probably a second half of 2023 onwards period. But then underneath that, there are certain um, infrastructure challenges that are common to many local authorities in the United Kingdom, um, where we've probably got a meaningful role that we can play in helping them solve those challenges. So, for example, EV charging. Um, you won't be able to, to buy a new petrol or diesel car from the year 2030 here. So the, the acceleration to EV road vehicles is happening now. The EV charging infrastructure isn't really in place yet. So that, that's got to be built, both public and private. Um, and we have a particular local authority business which focuses on both financing and advising local authorities as they, as they, as they solve some of these problems. So you know, that that's something that we should be thinking about and working on every day for the foreseeable future until that problem's solved. Similarly, with energy efficiency in buildings, we call you know, the retrofit challenge, either domestic or commercial. That's an urgent issue now, and we need to be making progress on that today. And that's that's been quite a frustrating challenge for the UK. The UK's had a number of initiatives around this that probably haven't had the traction that people wanted. Um, and we've got a role to play there as well. I think certainly for the next year or so, piloting new approaches to this, but trying to accelerate the rate at which we achieve high levels of energy efficiency. You know, we are, we've got a lot of leaky, leaky buildings in the UK at the moment, and a lot of the energy that we, that we use um, is wasted, and that, 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 that's not acceptable. So there are certain th themes like that that will, that will be part of our daily life for the foreseeable future. And then, and then when it comes to some of the bigger industrial um, expansions, 
we align behind government public policy. So the calendar for public policy, if you like, dictates the pace. Okay. So, um, I mean, it sounds like uh, there's a lot of kind of simultaneous work taking place. And um, one, one of the things we think a lot about at NZ Funds is commodities and the fact that a lot of countries and organisations are trying to make the same energy transition at the same time. And how, how, um, how do commodity prices and rising commodity prices we're currently seeing, but how do they factor in your modelling, and if at all? And um, where do you sort of see the, I guess, you know, a lot of people out there are saying there's a super cycle starting, if you will, in this transition space? And, you know, does that feature in how your team and you think about your investments? Absolutely. I mean, it's a key cost or price input into many of the projects that we will that we will look to get involved with. Markets at the moment are a bit difficult. The markets are, you know, are confused by the prospect of a looming global recession based on inflation, based on rates. Um, but at the same time, the commodity super cycle driven by um, this, uh, this consistent switch to um, a different energy system is real. There's, um, there's no question. The issue that sits underneath that, I think, really is about the supply chain um, and what I and, and the investment theme that I think will dominate for the next decade at least is untangling supply chains be, between autocracies and democracies. Um, it's already you know it's it's starting, but it's got a lot further to go. Um, we're you know, too many vivid examples as we speak of the dangers of being dependent upon an autocracy. And it's this, this issue of rule of man versus rule of law. Um, if you negotiate with another democracy, you're, you, you're negotiating with ultimately institutions that represent the people and people ultimately have got the power to, to get rid of leaders if they start to make irrational decisions. Autocracies do not work that way and they cannot be relied on in the same way. So um, from an investment perspective, you know, the currency supercycle issue is real and from an investment thesis perspective, Untangling um, supply chains between autocracies and democracies, that, that we're at the start of a 10-year cycle on that, which is going to be profound for capital flows, investment flows. Um, I'm not sure the rules are aware enough of, of how difficult that's going to be because um, some of, the, some of the, uh, the minerals that we require, some of the commodities that we require... Um, are inconveniently in the wrong places. It is. How um, how how would how would you describe then um, your relationship with uh, the, the I guess as an organisation with Treasury and the role of I guess the steer that the government gives you in, in deploying capital and has that changed through time? Have you you know obviously with the Ukraine happening and it was Brexit of course. How 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 has government influenced your thinking? <clears throat> yeah, so look, I, I'm a year into life in the public sector, so I'm, I would say I'm still learning it, but it's been a really good experience. So Treasury set us up um, with a very clear mandate. Um, we've got very you know, clear, well-documented, well-thought-out agreements that govern how we work. We've been established to be operationally independent, and that's really important, I think, for everyone to remember. Our authority and our resources come from Treasury, but the decisions we make we make 
um, as an executive and as a, and as a board. We have a, a board that's independent from Treasury. Um, and that means, crucially, that ministers can't be held accountable for the decisions that I make as the chief executive. Because um, we, you know, I have to turn down transactions regularly and I have to make decisions to deploy public money. I do that with the authority that I've got from Treasury, but the ministers are not account are not responsible for, for the decisions that I make. So that we've been set up in a very, very clear way. Um, and actually, it's nice to have just one shareholder. That's a new experience for me. Um, and today, they've been a terrific shareholder. So that, that, that relationship works well. They have the ability to approve. They do approve our strategy every year. We refresh it. And in between times, um, they have a mechanism called a strategic steer, where um, the chancellor would write to me with um, just that, a strategic steer. And the former chancellor, Rishi Sunak, wrote to me, I think it was in April, with a strategic steer, which was really about energy security and the role of natural capital in the net zero transition. So there are two main points in it. The first point was really in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the need for energy security, domestic energy security to progress up the agenda, um, which is very easy for us to, to assimilate because clearly it just meant that everything we were doing just accelerated a little bit. So that mechanism was used for energy security. And then there were a reminder, I think a really helpful reminder that we need to start thinking about the role that nature or natural capital can play in the transition to net zero. We've got, frankly, we've got more work to do in, in that area before we're clear. But yeah, so very clear, very clear relationship with Treasury. They've been a brilliant shareholder today. And then there is this mechanism for the, for the Chancellor to write with a strategic steer, entirely appropriate because all of the money we deploy is public money. And do you, are you, I mean, are you allowed to surface those things within your organisation or more broadly? Obviously you have now, but um, how, how does, how do you use that? Because it, it would shape how you think about investing. It would probably motivate, I'm guessing, your staff and, and thinking, wow, there's real um, uh, uh, poignance, if you will, uh, uh, in what we're doing and what's relevant to the government at large today. Uh, it, yeah, how do you use those documents? Yeah, I mean, the, the, and there's nothing secret about them. I mean, one of the things I've learned about life in the public sector is that everything's very, very transparent. So these are public documents, and it's it's clear to everyone um, to see that. Now, I mean, you use it as as you know, if you're the chief executive, accountable to a board, and ultimately to a shareholder. When if if the people that that control your resource or own your capital say that we want you to pay more attention to this. Pay more attention to it, and 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 in the context of that, that strategic steer, it was very straightforward because um, the the did it change what we were doing? It intensified, you know, focused our minds, it intensified the debates we were having. It didn't change the direction at all because one, we were only six or seven months old when we got it, um, but two, it wasn't a change of direction, right? If anything, it was just it was just really intensifying what we were already doing, exactly. Okay, fantastic. Um, all right, last question for me. Any hot tips for uh, someone setting up an in infrastructure bank in the, the southern hemisphere that you want to share? Um, well, I, so I, I've got the benefit of a whole year's experience <laughs> here, so I, I, um, I'm not sure I've got too many tips. I, I do think 
say the decision that that was taken to to not spend too much time designing this you know, get to the point where you know what you're doing give the organization some resources make sure you've got people that have got some skills and qualifications and that you trust and just tell them to get going because um, you'll you'll learn more by doing than you ever will by kind of doing this in theory um, make sure the governance processes around it are tight so that you can't really go off piste but yeah i think the key thing if you are deploying public money into infrastructure in pursuit of net zero or, or local and regional economic growth um wake up every day recognizing it's urgent and you've got to get on with it um you know it's, it's easy with infrastructure to say oh, every project takes 10 years or 15 years or 20 years and therefore you know today's not urgent it is it really is urgent today um you know this is in service of a climate crisis the uk is only one percent of global emissions so you can you can take a view in my role you could take a view this as well even if you know even if we saw saw this out for the uk we're not going to solve the global crisis that's the wrong way to think about it you know this country in my view this country gave the world the last industrial revolution we've got a bit of a moral responsibility to try and help the world with the next one the technologies and the skills that we'll develop both at an industrial and engineering, scientific, and at a financing level in the UK, we should be able to you know, use everything we've got to hone those, deploy those well, and export them. Let other, not, not export in the commercial sense, but let other people see how it can be done. Avoid the mistakes that we make along the way, take the shortcuts, and accelerate their transition. So, yeah, th this country's only 1% of emissions, but we can be a much more significant part of the solution is urgent so if you do if you do you know if new zealand does uh, does contemplate something like this we'd be very happy to share everything that we've learned but uh, if you're thinking about it get on with it would be my view <laughs> that's fantastic and um i love the role modeling aspect to it uh, you have important work to get on to so um with that i am going to say thank you so much for your time john it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you and um I wish you the best for, for, for the next wee while. Stefan, thank you so much. It's been a, it's been a privilege to, to be invited to do this and to share a bit about what we're doing. Um, and I've enjoyed it too, so thank you. Great. Have a good day. See you. This has been The Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. New Zealand Funds Management Limited is the issuer of the NZ Funds KiwiSaver Scheme, the NZ Funds Managed Superannuation Service, the NZ Funds Advice Portfolio Service, the NZ Funds Wealth Builder, and NZ Funds Income Generator. A product disclosure statement for each is available at nzfunds.co.nz. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future returns.